Hey everybody, how's it going? Happy Sunday. God, thank you for today. Thank you for all the blessings in our lives, especially this blessing of a life. Give us the strength, give us the peace, give us the wisdom to do your will with it. You are our Lord, you are our God, our provider and our protector. And we worship you now. Amen.
Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, will die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy you want you in all that I do.
Check. There we go. Welcome to Friends Church. Um, We're going to dismiss the kids in a second, but first I just want to pray. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, for this time together. God, I pray that as the kids go to their classrooms this morning, that you would speak to them through their teachers. Lord, that the gospel would be proclaimed and that you'd begin to change their hearts, even draw them to you this morning. We thank you for every person that volunteers their time in this church. God, and I pray that you would just strengthen all the people in the classroom as they pour out to our kids. Thank you for this morning. Be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name. If you have kids, you're more than welcome to bring them to Kids Church at this time. If you're visiting, um, welcome to Friends Church. If you want to know what's going on, we have some things in the bulletin to give you what's going on uh, schedule-wise. And on that note, we're just going to stand and continue to worship. Thanks for being here.
are the church. We are the church. We are the church. We are the church. We are God's chosen people. A people set apart to live holy and blameless through Jesus Christ. We are his royal priesthood. We are ministers of mercy. Who live to intercede on behalf of Christ to the world. We are God's holy nation. A people for his own possession. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him. Who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the living God dwells within us. We are the pillar and foundation of truth. We live to proclaim the truth of the gospel to a lost and broken world. That the church and of God. We love our Father and each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the flock. A people who hear and follow our shepherd's voice. In joyful obedience. We, we are, are the, the body of Christ. We exist as one body together. Interdependent upon each other. Under Christ as our head. We are the bride of Christ. A people who are passionately and wholeheartedly in love with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We are the church. 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 We are the church, and I almost face planted on the way up here. Welcome to Friends Church. If you are visiting us for the first time, you're catching us on week two of a new series that we're going to be running until June, talking about the 10 identities that God has laid out for us as a body to live. Um, I think it's incredibly important if we call ourselves Christians to realize who not only we think we are, but who God calls us to be. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at what it means to be the chosen race. But before we begin, uh, I'd like to invite our ushers to come forward. We're going to take the offering, and I'm just going to pray that God speaks. Father, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you that you alone are holy and worthy of all praise. And God, as we come here this morning, we put our focus, our attention our excitement, our, our ears, we lean them to you, God. We focus them on you, and we pray that you would speak to us, Jesus. Holy Spirit, just move through this place. I pray that as we get into your word, that your words would be power, that they would be life, that they would cut us and they would rebuild us, and that you would just sustain us in all things, God. Thank you for this body of believers. Lord, I pray that as uh, people give their money today as an offering, God, that you would bless it for your kingdom, that we would be good stewards with it, Lord, that it would be used for the furthering of your purpose, your kingdom, not only in this church, in this town, but in this world. God, thank you for who you are and be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, a chosen race. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I started looking at this this week, um, doesn't that term almost sound kind of like scary? Like, are we allowed to say that we're a chosen race? Like, isn't that like not politically correct to be like, we're chosen and you're not, right? Because what do we think of in this culture, especially when we look at society, when it comes to being chosen? I mean, I remember when I was a, uh, a kid... Me and my brother used to live 
uh, a little bit down the ways from the soccer fields on Davis. And we loved playing soccer. In fact, it took me like seven years not to call Floyd Coach Conger because he was my coach for a while. Um, but we would, we would bike down there in the summertime and do pickup games in between games with people. And I remember going down there with my Admiral Doncaster long purple socks on and my like uh, D'Addario blue jersey and I got my Adidas pants. You know, I'm just like, I'm rolling deep in it. Because you got to make a good first impression. I mean, what if, what if you get on the team and you get picked last, you know? So we would get into these scrimmage games, and I was picked last a fair amount, so I can feel that pain. But I remember the few times when, because I would always play with my brother, so it would always be older people because they never want to play with little kids, and I'd always tag along. But, man, I got picked once. I got picked first a couple times, and it was like I won the lottery, like, you know, it's like, Eric's like, that's right. I know you want me. Let's do this thing, you know. Like, where do you want to go, you know. Just, and then by the time it gets to, like, the last people in the group, you almost feel bad for them. You're like, man, I'm sorry you're so lame. Like, okay, let's play. Right? It's just like you almost have pity on them. And it's just like, oh, dude, all you've been doing is picked for a scrimmage game. Or in second grade, we used to have four square at Lighthouse Christian School. Um... And I remember getting picked for those teams and just feeling like a king, you know? It's just like being chosen brings you this feeling of pride and almost this feeling of like, yeah, I, I know I'm the man, and here's a proof for that. This week also I went on online and I looked, uh, like just I just typed in chosen, and the first thing that came up was the top ten things to be chosen for your next job. And it's almost like we got this uh, system in place in America where they're like, all right, dude, do these 10 things and you'll be the person. You'll get the Willy Wonka ticket. You know, like this is going to be legit. You've got to show up on time, show up early, dress the part. Don't, don't let them have access to your Facebook account. Like keep those things. No. Um, but it's almost like this. We, we have this, this list of accomplishments that that we have to have when we come to being chosen in this world. That society works. We don't, we work our way up a line, right? We work our way into these things and uh, being chosen almost is um, a stamp of approval or a stamp of accomplishment to show you that you've made it. So when we look at what it means to be a chosen race, how do we face that in a culture that's so based on what we can accomplish, our independence, this American mentality? How do we face this... Um, identity, being chosen. Well, we're going to spend some time today in the Old Testament, but first I want to jump with you to 1 Peter 2. If you got your Bible today, if you don't uh, know where that is, it's almost in the complete back of the book, so just do this and you'll be very close. Um, 1 Peter 2 is where we spent last week talking about living stones, where Peter starts to line out his definition of what the church is. That we, we would be a, a, a people tightly knit together in community, not just for the sake of because I'm poor and you got money or because, you know, we, we like to hang out, but because as we knit our lives together, God is revealed as holy and the testimony of your faith becomes my faith. And as we live life together, there's just something that builds within us where God is revealed clearer. Our faith becomes stronger and life becomes a lot more livable when Jesus is alive. So we're going to build off that today because in 
First Peter 2, 9, Peter starts to identify the characteristics of what it means to be this spiritual house of living stones. And so he gives us these four identities. In verse 9 he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I want you to be thinking about this statement, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we go through this discussion today, just keep that in the back of your mind. But these four identities, it's not like Peter just picked this out of thin air. It's not like he went, and you're a chosen race. That sounds good. Okay. Royal. No, no, no. These identities were all spoken of Israel, the nation that God chose out among the nations of the world to represent Him in the Old Testament. The very specific. And what He was doing here is He was saying what Israel was in the Old Testament, you now are in the New Covenant under Christ's blood. So I know some of us know this, but there's this, there's this truth that in the Word, the Old Testament... I mean, if you try to read the New Testament without understanding the Old, it's like trying to watch the climax of a movie without understanding any of the plot of what just happened. It builds up. And the Old Testament is a picture of God's redemptive history moving forward to this point in history where the cross is. And we see these shadows of things where this is an incomplete picture, but it's a picture of what's to come. And what Peter is saying right here, which is a bold statement, especially speaking to Jews in the first century, is what Israel was in the, first, or in the time of the Old Covenant, what Israel was under these identities, now the church is. And that wasn't something that was taken lightly. In fact, it was offensive to a lot of people because he was saying what the chosen race was, was identified with, now God's chosen kingdom, His church, His people, from all people, that's what we are. So to understand what it means to be a chosen race, we're not just going to look in the New Testament and go like, I wonder what Peter was talking about. We're going to go back to the beginning and say, what did it mean for Israel to be chosen? Because Peter is doing this intentionally, and there's something in mind that he's saying that we need to know. So if we need to know as a church what it means for us today to have our identity to be a chosen race, we cannot know it outside of Israel. So with that in mind, we're going to go to the beginning. So flip your Bible the other way, like this, to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12... This is where the nation of Israel starts. It doesn't start with a nation. It starts with one man. And it starts with a promise. And this is how Genesis 12 starts. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make your, you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now let me tell you something, if you don't know anything about Abram, if you don't know anything about Genesis, is this is the introduction to Abram. There's nothing before this that says, and Abram was a really good man, and so he lived life, and then God said, dude, you're awesome, so come with me. You know, our introduction to Abram is this. There was a man named Abram, and God said, I'm going to make you into a nation. What in the world did that, how? What, how why did he do that? 
Now, to understand why it was important that God did this in a picture of what He was trying to accomplish through Abraham, we can't start in Genesis 12. Let's start back in the garden for a second. In the garden, man was created. We talked about this last week, how the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Psalms 19, right? Beautiful picture. Uh, But humanity bears His very image. That we would be the image of God. That we would image Him to the world. That we would mirror Him to the world. That's why we existed. That's why we've been given breath. And what happens is in the garden, men doesn't like the fact that they're just going to reflect God. They want to be like God, so they try to be like God. And in doing so, they fall from God. And so men falls into this rebellious heart where... He doesn't long for God anymore. He longs to exalt himself. Because that's what happens in the fall. And there's a picture of this in the chapter before Genesis 12 that really sets up the story of why there's this abrupt story of Abram in Genesis... or the, Yeah, in Genesis 12. This is a picture in Genesis 11. And, and in the chapter before, there's a story about all the people of the world of that time who are now in sin. And it says in Genesis 12 that at one time all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they took bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heaven and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make our name great, lest we disperse over the face of the whole earth. So we have the fall, and then in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel is a picture of man's rebellion. The people here wanted to make a name for themselves that was so great, it would reach to the heavens. Humanity at its finest outside of God. But God scatters their design and He starts to lay out a plan and His plan kicks off immediately. And it's almost like we're hearing Him in the middle of His thought because He chooses a man named Abram and He makes him a promise and what He says to Abram is in direct contrast to what the tower builders say in Genesis 11. The tower builders say, let us make a name for ourselves and God says to Abram, I will make your name great. I've said this multiple times when preaching, but let me say it again. We were made for the glory of God. Until I die or I've been kicked out of this church, I will say that to you probably every week. We were made for the glory of God. Our design in the garden was to multiply and fill the earth so that God's glory would be filled throughout all this land. But in the fall, man chose to rely on himself and seek his own glory. So what does God do? Well, he doesn't give up on us because he's a gracious, loving God. So he elects a man and promises to achieve his purpose through him and his descendants. He would make Abram's name great and he would make him a blessing. Why? Because he would make his name great through them. Because he would reveal the character of his name through this people. But why Abram? Well, it wasn't because... His descendants would turn into a superpower. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, it says that they were the fewest among all the peoples of the earth. 
And when we look in Numbers 13, when the nation of Israel finally gets kicked up, and it's more than just one man, it's generations now, when they get to the edge of the promised land that God has promised to give them, the land of Canaan, they find out that there's giants in the land. And they don't ride in like Braveheart and take the land. They're not William Wallacing this one. Instead, it says that they weep aloud all night, they throw a protest against Moses and Abram, they're probably picketing with signs, and they yell, we wish we would have died in Egypt or somewhere in the wilderness. We did not come to die here. They weren't the bravest bunch. And it wasn't even because of their righteousness or their integrity, because in Deuteronomy 9.6, Moses literally tells them, don't think God is giving you this land because you're righteous, because you're not. In fact, you're a stubborn people, and you constantly rebel. And it was just a few chapters ago that I had to convince God again not to kill all of you. You're stupid. Wake up. Like he just took you out of slavery. Don't worship a golden calf. Let's just start there, okay? They weren't the brightest bunch. And then Abram himself He came from a pagan land. And it's actually really interesting when you start to do the research on Abram's history and where he probably came from was Iraq, which is really interesting when you understand uh, Jacob and Ishmael because Ishmael, I mean, it's a Muslim country now. I mean, it's just there's so much in this where he was chosen not because he was righteous. He was chosen not because of these things. God chose Abram. Not because of his accomplishments, because he wanted to accomplish something through him. Which shows us something. How many of us worry continually whether or not we're going to see God's plan in our life? We're going, to, we're going to miss it. See, I think Abram's life is an incredible testimony to the fact that when God wants to accomplish something for his glory, he will pick even a pagan man to do it. And the only thing Abram did was when God said, I want you to go, he said, okay. By faith, Abram left his land to start a nation. Israel was made to be a nation set apart for his purpose. Now we need to catch this. Because if we are to be a chosen race, this is why Israel was chosen. This is the identity. So listen to this. They were made to be a nation set apart for His purpose. That all the nations of the world would see them and be drawn to God. That they would be the reflection of Yahweh. That would draw all the nations of the world to the reality that God is the only one true God. And He did some incredible stuff through this people. He showed His power to the world in setting them free from 430 years of slavery. He showed his provision in the desert where he provided from them day and night with food and water. He showed his holy character. It was revealed through his law that he gave his people that they might know the gap between the holiness of God and the depravity of man. That we would know the character of God. And over and over and over and over and over again, he showed his mercy as Israel turned away in sin constantly. The world came to know this God through this nation. And God led them to the promised land that flowed with milk and honey, not so that they could be fat and happy, but so that they could be a storehouse of blessing for all 
the lands. See, here's the thing we need to catch. Israel was not brought into this promised land because he's like, just have fun. See you later. He's like, no, no, no. I brought you here so that when people need anything, you'll be the resource in which it flows. That when, when people will see you, they'll say, who is this people who live in such a way with such wisdom, integrity, that serve this one called Yahweh? Who is this that flow out freely and never borrow? Who is this? And then they would realize that God alone was God. It says in the Bible that they were to be a refuge to the desperate. Literally, there were sections of Israel where the gates were open 24 hours a day, which was not common. And if you had an issue, you could come in and find refuge, even if you were a foreigner. They were called to execute justice for the fatherless and the widows, to give food to the foreigners and lend to anybody who needed. They were the race who carried the bloodline of Jesus, the Messiah. This was God's people. This was the chosen nation who God set apart in His love to reveal His characters to the world. Do you get this? So why were they chosen? So that all the world might come to God. So that all the foreigners on earth might know Yahweh and be saved. Now with that in mind, I want you to jump to Luke 4. We're going to jump ahead. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Luke four sixteen through 30. And I want to show you a picture. This is in the New Testament. This is in the first century. The Jewish people have been established for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they've become this religious power. The synagogues have been built. There's high priests. There's worship ceremonies, their structure. And this is where we've come to. And in this story, there's a local boy that comes back to his hometown, Nazareth. After making a pretty big name for himself in Capernaum. And this young man's name was Jesus. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and a crowd comes to hear him. And what he does in this moment is incredible, and we cannot miss it. This blows my mind. I thought that I knew the context of this story. I thought that I knew how it played out. I had no clue until I started looking at it this week. He virtually incites a riot, and he does it on purpose. And I'll show you why. First, they give him a scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, to read from. And then he finds chapter 61, and he reads this in front of God's chosen people who are waiting for the Messiah. He reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And to set free the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant. And he goes and he sits down. In that day they would read scripture. Standing. And then they would do their exegesis expository preaching on it. Sitting. And this was his expository preaching. He sat and he said this. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Literally, what he said was, here's your lesson. I am the Messiah. That is crazy. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And here comes Joseph's young boy, Jesus, reading from the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah's coming. And he says, while sitting, oh, by the way, that's me. Drop the mic, walk away. You know, it's just like. Now I want you to catch this because this is the response. It says that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not the son of Joseph? All of them, when he said, I'm the Messiah, was like, huh, that's pretty cool. They marveled. They were like, wow. And all the commentaries I read, some of them were like, well, it could have been negative. And everybody's like, no, no, no. This was positive. Like they were literally looking at him going like, Wow. The son of Joseph just said he was the Messiah. Like, homeboy comes home to Nazareth in the newspapers. Claims to be Messiah. But he doesn't end there. And this is what we need to grasp. Because his intention wasn't just to say, hey, I'm here. It was way deeper. And this is what he does. And this is what blows my mind. Because he comes completely from left field in this. This is the next verses. He chooses to tell two stories from the Old Testament. And before he even says them, he already knows what their response is going to be. Because in verse 24, he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in their hometown. Literally, you're about to kick me out. Because before this, everybody was happy. They're like, oh, good job, Jesus. Right. But then he says, truly I tell you, no prophet is welcome in their hometown. He knows what's coming, and he knows that it's going to make him livid. And the first story he tells us from 1 Kings 17. He starts in verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three and a half years, and great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. I don't know if that means anything to you, but let me tell you what they heard. There was a time in Israel when there was a bunch of Jews and God healed the foreigner. Let's go on. And then he tells a next story in verse 27 in 2 Kings 5. And he says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum, the Syrian. Literally, all the people, of all the people God chose to heal of leper, leprosy, He chose a foreigner. And now look at their response. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What in the world did Jesus just do? Come into a synagogue and I say, I am the Messiah. And you say, that's pretty cool. Then I tell you, 
Hey, remember that time when Elijah and Elisha were around and God, he actually just healed the foreigners and then they try to kill him. Let me tell you what happened. God chose a people in Genesis 12 to bear his image to the world. The world might see him and be drawn into him. And for hundreds of years, God was faithful to this people. And they sinned and they fell away and they fell into slavery. And God said, I remembered my promise to Abram and I will come and I will save you. And he did. And they fell into exile in Babylonia. And he said, I will remember my promise to Abraham and I will bring my sons and my daughters from afar and I will make you a people again. And they turned in their sin and they fell away. And it says in Ezekiel that it got to the point where they were so wicked. God said to them, only for my name's sake will I save you, Israel. Because you are wicked. You've sold yourself to this world. I have saved you constantly and you've turned from me. And still Israel. They got this stuck in their head. And this became what they lived for. When we get to the first century, Judaism is at this height where now... It's this pristine thing. I am the chosen race. And what makes me chosen is that I'm a Jew. And how dare you come into my synagogue and tell me that my God heals foreigners. That's what happened. Because Jesus was getting to the heart of an issue with this people. Israel had forgotten their call. Their mentality turned from this nation who is about God. We exist to reveal Him and His glory to this world is about us and this world is about our people and we exist to glorify ourselves. We are the chosen. We exist for our own. And Jesus knew that and so He gets to the heart of the issue. God is for God is for all people. God is for all people, Israel. The reason you were made a nation was to draw the world to the revelation of who he was. Because he wanted them. But your chosen place as Israel has not produced humility and compassion to this world it has produced pride and scorn and i have come to make a new kingdom so this is what jesus does this is what his point is over and over and over in the gospel god has not chosen a race because they're pristine over all people he's chosen a race so that all people might know god And so what does he do? He enters a city called Capernaum and he sees a centurion who has one of his servants is lying paralyzed at home suffering. And he says to him, I will come and I will heal your servant. Let me tell you what that's that's the equivalent of. Because in one part of the gospel, it talks about how the centurion was friends with some of the Jews. Matthew does not put that in here. Because... Here's the fact. When we look at the Roman Empire and Judaism, it'd be like a U.S. Marine going to ISIS and saying, hey, let's have tea. 
Literally, that's a picture of what's happening here. Yeah, I'll go heal, I'll heal your servant. And he doesn't stop there. Listen to this. This is in Matthew 8. He says, But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only to say the word of my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. With no one in the chosen race of God have I found such faith as this Roman. But he doesn't end there. And he says this, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. What did he just say? He literally just said, many will come from the east and the west. In this point in the land, I mean, let's jump to nowadays. He's talking about Iran, Iraq, China, Russia. Many will come from the east and the west, and they will dine at my table because they will know that I am God. You exalt yourself, Israel, and you will fall. We have to catch this. Jesus is saying... That with his coming, a radically new way of defining the people of God is here. Namely, faith in him. Faith in Jesus trumps race. Faith in Jesus trumps all race. Over and over and over in the gospel, this happens. In the story of the Good Samaritan, a foreigner is a hero of compassion in Luke 10. A foreigner is a hero of compassion. The healing of the ten lepers. And the only one who returns, who is he? He's a Samaritan. He's a foreigner. And he returns with a gracious, humble heart. In the healing of the Gentile's daughter in Mark 7. When he drives out the money changers out of the temple, he says, My house shall be called a house for prayer for all the nations, Israel. All of them. And Jesus was flipping the world on end. I mean, just picture this, okay? God chooses a people out of the earth, out of His grace, because it says He chose to love them. Not because they accomplished anything or deserved it, but because He had a purpose. And for hundreds of years, he was faithful to them as they fell away. And he was faithful and they fell away. And he was faithful and they fell away. And then he sends his son and his son stands in front of them and says, I have come to redeem everything. And they say, that's nice. And he says, and it includes all the nations and they want to kill him. And then it gets to the point where they're so frustrated with what Jesus is doing because he's ruining this Jewish empire that in John 12 it says this, and this blows my mind. It says, many of the authorities believe that Jesus was the Christ. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved Catch this, the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The people that God set apart to be separate from the tower builders. 
in Genesis 11 have come full circle and now have come to the point where they're the ones that nailed Jesus to the cross. Oh my goodness. We need a Savior. We were made to reflect God's image in this world. Which in turn becomes the greatest issue in this world because we have all sinned and we have all fallen away. And it says no one seeks God, not one. That's a big issue. We've exchanged that glory that we were made to enjoy and magnify and we've exchanged it for ourselves. And this is the depravity which our society has come That we would look in the mirror and we would see who we are and the color of our skin and we'd exalt it above all men. And say, I am greater than you. I am better than you. And if we've forgotten, let me tell you about the last hundred years. The Armenian genocide. In Turkey. In 1915... A million and a half Armenians are slaughtered because of their race. The Holocaust in Germany accounted for six million Jews. Who knows how many millions in the Soviet gulag under Stalin. The numbers, I looked it up this week, there's arguments. Seven million, thirty million, they know fifty-two million people came through the camps. The numbers aren't even accurate. The Japanese slaughter of 6 million Chinese, Indonesians, Korean, Filipinos, and Indo-Chinese. Men that literally tied other men's hands behind their back and buried them alive because they were different. The massacre in Rwanda in 1994. What about what's happening in Burma? This is a huge issue, church. Outside of Jesus, the only thing we're left with is exalting ourselves. So what's the answer? The gospel. Because here's the fact. Every person outside of the covering of blood in Jesus is lost. And broken. And when we look in a mirror outside of the cross, all we have is death. There's nothing to exalt. We're all stuck and lost in our sin. And that's the point that God is holy and we are not. And what Jesus came to do was to take that bar and make it an even playing field. You think you're better than them? Outside of my blood, all of you are fallen. Every person on earth. So what happens when we come to the cross? What happens when we have the blood? John Piper says that racism is not a social issue. It's not a political issue. It's a blood issue. Because outside of the blood of Jesus, all of us are divided. All we want is to exalt who we are. We look in the mirror and all we see is what we want to make bigger. But in the blood, God takes us from our wicked ways and He changes us into one bloodline of the kingdom it's a blood issue that god would bring all the nations together and he would say you were lost but now you're redeemed and let me tell you church the same blood that runs through you 
When you are redeemed, it's the same blood that runs through me. There is no such thing as racism when we are a church. It cannot exist. It cannot exist. The gospel is the answer and the cure for it. Because it shows us our need. While we are still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 2. He says, 2, 11 through 22. This is in your outline. And I love this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are being built together into the dwelling place of God. We talked about this last week, that God is building us into a spiritual house as living stones. We knit ourselves together, and your faith becomes my testimony, and my faith becomes yours. But Paul brings it a step further. He says, no, 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 we don't end there. See, this race that God is bringing together is from all nations. And when we gather from different ethnic ethnic and cultural bounds and histories and nations and people, when we become one people, God is seen in a completely new way. Completely different. Why? Because here's the fact. I said this last week. I'm I'm a 30-year-old white man. That's how I see Jesus. And that's okay. But I need my black brother and sisters. I need my native brothers and sisters. I need my Latin brothers and sisters. I need people from all races to know how they see the Father. It's different and unique and it's beautiful. We are a chosen race to declare the glories of God. Nothing has changed. In Isaiah 43 it says, Israel was made a nation so that the Lord might be praised. And in 1 Peter 2 it says, you have been a chosen race that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness. And the church should be a place where we see all the peoples of the world gathered together as one body. And here's the thing that I want to see in this church. We need diversity. Not because it's politically correct, but because I want to know God in a different and unique and more real light. Tony, when you sang last week, 
It wasn't that your voice was awesome. It's that you brought a whole different reality of Jesus to this stage. Thank you. That's what this church is about. And it's not just like, okay, well, you know, you got your flavor. Me and Tony were talking on Wednesday where he's like, you know, I've been in churches where it's like, this is just a vanilla flavor. And I love what he said. He's like, can't church just be about ice cream? Can't we just all be about ice cream? What Paul is calling us to is not this segregation where we go, okay, we got our black church and we got our white church over here and we got our native church and we got our Latino church and we got all these different churches. So we're the body of Christ. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, no, you weave closely. You knit your lives closely together in one body so that when people come in, they say, what are you like? What is happening? And people see God not only from the light of a white man on stage, but from the history of a native culture and a black culture and a Latino culture and these cultures that we would never know, the histories. I don't know what it's like to have ancestors in the last 150 years that were slaves. I don't know it. But I do know that that must root in us a reality of God's redemption when you live it that I will never know. And I confess that. So when I look in this room, half of the white people need to leave. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Total joke. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to be praying that God brings people from all people into this body. Because in the blood of Christ, we haven't just been like, oh, yeah, you're saved and I'm saved. It's like, no, you're my brother. You're my sister. And when I look at your life, I don't look at it from this political standpoint of like, well, you should have known better. I go... What would it be like to be that? And I come into your world and I weep with you and I mourn with you and I stand with you and I have faith with you from different ethnic backgrounds and different people. And that's what Jesus was bringing in the Gospels. He's saying the kingdom of God is of all people. And in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, No longer do we know man by the flesh, but, but, but through Christ alone. So... Our identity isn't that we're white and we're black and these things. First, our identity is the blood of Jesus. But our identity is beautiful and it's unique. And I love this picture Kathy told me about. We had this teacher. He just moved from here. His name was Tingui. Uh, He was from Trinidad and he volunteered in kids' church. Awesome dude. He was a medic in the U.S. Army. I should say he is. He is. He's not dead, okay? But he was helping out in the preschool room last month, and one of the days of the 11 o'clock service, he was coloring with this three-year-old boy, and the boy asked him, why are you colored different than me? And he said, because I was born this way. And the boy looked at him, and he said, and I love this. Let's not miss this. He said, but who colored you? And Tingui said, God colored me. God colored me. 
Now, let me tell you why I love that picture. Because we talked about this last week, that we're living stones. And when we're built together, we stand back and we see God, okay? What if all the stones are white? And we step back and we're like, what is this, some like modern day painting of a white wall? It's just like this, you know. But what if happens if we interweave our lives like intimately with people from different races and different cultures and the stones all have a color and then we look as the building is being built and we stand back and we go, that's the face of God. Like that is God. It's incredible to know what God can do in revealing himself through a people who unite themselves from different backgrounds, different cultures, different races in a unique way that we would never have if we didn't. And church, we need that. Not because I want to be like relevant and on the cutting edge. We need that because God is most glorified in that. And we are most satisfied when God is most glorified. So know that that's a call right now, all right? If you have some friends who are a different race than you, bring them to church next week. But it's, I mean, it's a call. Like, let's do this thing. Let's get this involved. Let's intertwine our lives. Let's get out of our cultural norms and stop saying, well, we're vanilla ice cream. So, you know, if you want Sunday over there, it's just like, no, no, we're ice cream, church. And we're one body. This is the picture that we see in Revelations 5. And when I see it, I just freaking love it because it says, this is around the throne that they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth together. Awesome. And in case you missed it, that kingdom was established when Christ overcame the grave. So let's start doing that now. Amen? All right. With that in mind, oh my gosh, sound like I broke my spine. <laughs> Let's stand as different people from different places and take the blood and the bread together. If you guys want to come up for communion. You said, it says in His Word that when Jesus overcame the grave, when he overcame death, he established something that was new. He established something that was completely new. A new covenant in his blood. That we would be his people and he would be our God. And no longer would we need a mediator to know him because we would know him ourselves. And when we asked for forgiveness, he would forgive our sins and remember them no more. Things were different. God became personal to us because of our high priest Jesus Christ so the night before his death Jesus foreshadowing what he knew would come in his resurrection took a cup and he lifted it in the middle of the Passover ceremony and he says this is my blood which is a new covenant and in doing so he said every single time you take this cup together Every single time you lift this to your lips, you remember what I established. You remember what I overcame so that you could be one people from every nation. You remember it. 
And then he took a, a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. That I poured out my life for you. And when you take this bread, let it be life to your body. Let you remember the pain that I suffered, the shame that I despised, the death that I overcame. And man, it's just such a beautiful picture. We are united because of the blood. One bloodline. You know, when I think about what it means to be a chosen race, it's not any different than it was for Israel. But we are chosen because God is great. That's our call, that we would proclaim that greatness to this world. That we would never forget. That we would never let cultural bounds or social issues separate what God has joined. As one people. Once you got your cup and your bread, just stay standing with us. Because there's another picture that I love in the Bible. communion is a sign it's a testimony like we talked about last week we're living stones and when we look around this room and we see the effects that the gospel has played on us that it would strengthen us because of the reality of Christ in each one of us so as you look around the room you see people who are redeemed not because they deserved anything but because God overcame death and we just had to say yes what a beautiful picture of grace Man, that we might love each other deeply, personally. So, this is it, church. This is the new bloodline. This is what unites us. God, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for what you established. And Lord, we take this and remember the new covenant, which was established by the shedding of your blood. And we take this bread to represent your body that was broken for us. And we remember the price you paid to reconcile all the nations to yourself. All people, all tribes, all tongues, all color. Lord, we stand as one body under this. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Awesome. Be blessed, church. Have an awesome week. We will see you next week. If you want prayer, there will be some people up here to pray with you. And, uh, yeah, God is good.
guys have a blessed week.